0: All right, well hey everybody and welcome back to Theology Thursday. My name's Alex Hauser. That's Doug Becker. We're pastors. This is Bible and we're going to open it up and we're going to study some theology today.
1: Yeah, Doug, we're how not going to open we're not going to open it up very far though. No, we're
0: not. Probably first couple pages. We're going in Genesis today, Doug. Yes. All right, what are we talking about today?
1: Uh, today, um, we're going to talk
0: about the creation. All of your controversy you have planned for us today.
1: <laughs> yeah, we're going to talk about creation according to Genesis one and two, but per, primarily Genesis chapter one, uh, specifically one one through two three. Uh, that's what's sometimes called the first table of creation, right? Because there's two creation accounts in the beginning of Genesis. There's. Right. Um,
0: I've always understood one to be kind of like one's a little bit more of an overview, and one's a little bit more of kind of like a zoom in to specific. Yeah, I think so. Man.
1: I think that's a way to think of it. Yeah. And it's, yeah, there's, there's so many interesting things too, right? Like, so chapter, as you said, you know, it's a bird's eye view of like God's creation of everything. And it's interesting that God is simply called God in that first table of creation. Right. But then in the second one, where it zooms in and it talks about his special relationship with mankind, his, personal name is used right it's it calls him Yahweh God consistently through that mm. right and then of course okay. when the serpent comes tempting the woman it, they they simply refer to him as God his more distant uh, title but then when he comes seeking them after the fall he's once again Yahweh right so like the even like the the names of God that are used are are interesting there, and okay. Maybe we could actually even have a talk about that someday because I think that that's a very interesting topic. Okay. But we, yes, we're, so we are talking about about the creation account in Genesis today, and um, sweet, Let's and yeah, it. and and I I'm thinking about uh, I'm thinking about it uh here today in terms of what ways of reading the Genesis creation account are available to us as Christians. So okay. um, obviously there's a lot of controversy. It's probably, you're not hiding, you know, there's no, there's no way to really hide the ball here, right? The, the idea is like since, since the advent of modern evolutionary theory, there's um, been uh, many people who feel like there's a, a big conflict between Genesis and that. And so are, are Christians obligated by the Bible to read uh, the Bible in conflict with that? Or are there possible ways of reading it that are not? Um, is it an either or choice?
0: Sure. And, so, Doug, if I'm hearing you right, you're saying, you know, the argument's always like, okay, you know, creation or evolution, right, mm-hmm. are t- is typically the way the argument just kind of sits out there. Yes. And basically what you're saying is it is it that hard and fast where you're looking at creation versus evolution or right. you know if I'm if I'm really going to use a broad stroke I, I don't think science and faith are opposing factors but a lot of times it gets trampled down into being faith versus science a lot of times right. which right. for me is very frustrating because I and think And do do we, is, we
1: need to develop kind of our own science uh take on the science too right like um, our own way of reading fossil evidence and, you know, alleged ages of the earth and things like that. Um, and uh, this is an intensely pastoral concern too, um, you know, just to disclose a little bit, like I, I've, I've walked with a lot of people through heavy issues um, throughout my years as a, as a student, as a, as a teacher and uh, as a pastor Um Many people who you know really navigate these issues well, and it adds to a better understanding of their faith. But sometimes people just crash against the rocks. And one tendency that I've seen is, and this this I don't think settles it, but this is one of the reasons why I think we need to be concerned with this, is that um, when we if if it is right to tell people that they have to choose either between what the Bible says and what is taught in the science classroom. Mm. Um, And, and their view about what the Bible says is presented as rigid, where if you don't read it this way, you're not believing scripture. Well, what happens in those cases where they, where they become convinced by what they're taught in the science classroom, then they're faced with the crisis of faith where I have to choose. And if I choose what my teacher is telling me, or if I choose what you know I think this set of evidence leads to, then that means that Genesis is false. And that means that the Bible is false. And I've seen a lot of people crash and burn in their faith. And so I think this has a big um, element of pastoral wisdom in it as well. Now, that's not to say that we, that we want that to dictate what our answer is. But I think it at least tells us that if we're going to tell people that, that they must make a choice, we better have a good reason for telling them that.
0: Okay, so I'll get my <clears throat> bias out there right at the on start of this. Because ever since I've been a Christian, I've always read Genesis and interpreted it literally. So when it says seven days, I interpret it seven days. I think that, uh, excuse me, I think that there's a lot of room, Um, you know, so at at Emergence, we talk a lot about primary and secondary issues, right? I I don't think that this is a primary issue as far as, you know, this is not a hard and fast thing that has to do with salvation as far as how you interpret Genesis. I've always interpreted it to mean, you know, like when we talk about seven day creation, that it is seven days, but should somebody say, all right, well, that's seven eras, then It's not necessarily a gospel issue, you know what I mean? You can still believe that there were seven ages or so to speak, um, and still be a Christian, still um, understand what Jesus did uh, as far as dying for our sin on the cross. And, and, um, and so for that, you know, this one's interesting to me, Doug. So basically what you're saying is that it's not as hard and fast as term, and you're kind of boiling it down to two interpretations, right? You're saying on one hand, um, there's an interpretation that I just described, or basically you read it verbatim, literally, uh, as is God created the earth in seven days, God created the earth in seven days. Um, And then there's also, you know, to go to the complete opposite side, where basically, you know, in our modern day school system, where science is being taught the Big Bang and everything else, that there is actually, um, there's another way that we can kind of look at this. And Doug, you're saying that, if I'm hearing you right, that that's not necessarily just coming from our culture's need for this argument, right? That there's actually a biblical argument for this?
1: Yes, and there's there's reasons why, although like I don't I don't think we'll get too far into this, but you know even even uh, Christians before the advent of modern science um, had different ways of reading this text. Uh, it's kind of interesting. Some of Are you them talking about it, like
0: the three tier kind of.
1: Well, no, well, no. I'm talking about, for example, Augustine, or if you're okay. sophisticated, Augustine. Although I've never understood that because we call. Constantine rather than Constantine but I'm I digress um, but you know so his reading and his his uh, opinion if I understand correctly is essentially why to take God so long <laughs> and so and so he he kind of opted for a different way of reading it because he thought it took God too long um, if God and, can snap but, but, his
0: fingers and and make light, why did it take him seven days?
1: Right, right, right. And and as, and essentially, the entire argument is how would ancient people have understood this passage? Okay. Um. How how would they have read it, and and how should we and how should we read it? So, all right, Doug. Uh, so we do want to dive into the text for that, um, but but yeah. Uh, it's an extraordinarily important issue, but I will say that different people have different calculations as to how important it is. So we do have a, you know, first order doctrine, second order doctrine, and I would say even third order doctrine in terms of importance and how essential they are. Now yeah. the, there, I want to be fair to all sides. Some people will argue that if you don't read the text a certain way then you don't believe the bible right and um you're teaching people to not believe what the scripture says and so they almost and so it's not uncommon to hear this elevated as a quasi gospel issue Mm. or at the very least as significantly impacting one's doctrine of inerrancy in other words, inerrancy yes. is, is the statement that the Bible is truthful in all that it affirms.
0: That's actually what I wanted to ask you about too, Doug, because, you know, I've, I've actually run into this quite, quite often at Emergence, um, more so than I ever thought I would, really. And the argument there is that, well, if you don't interpret, interpret Genesis literally, then how can you interpret any of the rest of Scripture? And how do you know that it's all not just symbolic that, or that it was changed or interpreted, or uh, you know the human authors forgot about certain things, you know, as they were writing this, or it's just, you know, Jesus didn't actually die on the cross; it was just a symbol for what really happened, you know, spiritually, or so on and so forth. Yes. you know,
1: and it's and it's not a coincidence that a lot of those views kind of got cemented in a in, at a place in time when when uh um the literalness of key biblical texts have been called into account so you know when when lip, when theological liberalism really started to rear its head and suddenly you have readings where Jesus is spiritually resurrected and you know resurrected in our hearts or uh that is you right. know simply the nothing more than the charisma, the preaching of the early church or something like that and and uh you know uh and, and a real impulse to defend the, the literalness of the text. And you get it on both ends of scripture, right? Because it's it's in that milieu that you also get ultra literal readings of revelation as well, mm. because if we don't take as many, the, as much of the text abs, as literally as possible, then we're under, we're going to end up undermining key things uh, because then you could say everything's, but I would just say that that view is an overcorrection. And I think, demonstrably so there's plenty of passages in the bible that we agree are symbolic are figurative that everyone thinks that to be the case and that doesn't undermine scripture
0: like so what can you, can you give well, me one doug
1: so we're talking about the beginning of 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 genesis go to the end of genesis to genesis 49 when jacob is lying on his deathbed and he says stuff like this Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfold. Oh. Wait a minute. I thought Issachar was a human being. A su- his son, he's a donkey? Uh, he, um, uh, Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fa- fawns. I thought Naphtali was one of Jacob's sons. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Okay. Like, like, obviously the text is there and, and nobody says because that part of the text is figurative and symbolic. All of it must be. Okay. And there's, and you could say, well, that's blatantly poetry. Genesis 1 is not poetry, and it's not. It is not poetry. Sometimes you hear, it, you hear it referred to as poetry. This is a poem. It's not. Hebrew poetry has very specific features, none of which is present in Genesis 1. It's not composed of parallel lines. It doesn't um, use terseness and a, and a lack of unnecessary words. There's 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 plenty of features of, of poetry that are not there in Genesis one,
0: okay. But
1: there's other passages in the Bible that we would agree are not are not literal thing. Think of think of some of the things that Daniel or Zechariah see, right? Like like visions and stuff like that, um, stories, parables, um, and so and it's the presence this is it. of those different. We've spoken of genre in recent yeah. weeks. The presence of Different genres within a book does nothing to undermine the historical accuracy of historical narrative that, are, that is contained in the same books.
0: Okay, I'm, um, I'm with you so far. I'm yeah. I'm really intrigued to see what happens once we dive.
1: Other prominent Genesis. examples of that: uh, the books of First and Second Samuel, which are historical narratives, begin and end with poems with plenty of non-literal language in them. Um, Isaiah is composed of prophecies, which you interpret symbolically. And yet chapters 36 through 39 are historic narratives about Sennacherib's invasion of Jerusalem and Hezekiah's um, uh, subsequent misadventures. Um, And uh, uh, you also have Ezekiel and his his visions of the new temple and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, these are told by narrative prose. Uh, They mix genres. So the fact that one portion of a book is a certain genre does not mean that the whole book has to be read that way. Sure. It's it's a slippery slope fallacy to say that it is. So I do feel, whereas you're going to find that I'm kind of uh, accepting of various views and, and able to say, I think what, spoiler alert, where we will land is if I think there are two primarily acceptable readings for Christians, and and I don't begrudge people for holding either of them, and I'm not going to say like it definitely is this way. One thing that I will definitely say is that the argument that reading um, Genesis 1 non-literally undermines the rest of Scripture—that is a patently false argument. I do stand strongly against that. It's demonstrably false, and we should stop using that argument.
0: Okay, so I hear what you're saying, Doug. Basically, if I'm summarizing right and tell me if I am, there is a viewpoint, and I'll say that often I'm the one, I come from the conservative side of, of interpreting this, right? Where essentially, if we're not interpreting this literally, then how can we justify interpreting anything else literally? You know, aren't we just doing that with all of scripture? Um, I've since moved from that viewpoint, of course. Um, but what you're saying, Doug, is to make, a little, make this a little bit more clear. There are specific places throughout scripture where prose is being used, poetry is being used. There's different genres of writing, as we've talked about in recent weeks, um, of how we kind of look at certain things. And and basically, what you're saying, Doug, is that there is a little bit wider of a lens of interpretation for Genesis than the the hyper conservative root of of absolute, um, <clears throat> liter- I guess, uh, literativeness. What is that literal yeah. interpretation? Uh, yeah, absolutely.
1: I would say I would say literalness.
0: <clears throat> literalness. Um, okay. Okay. But
1: okay. the thing is, is that But that's even slippery because, all right. Let me let me frame it this way: Um, the purpose of what is a literal interpretation, Uh, and there is a difference between a literal interpretation and a literalistic interpretation. So sometimes I think we misunderstand the purpose of biblical interpretation. The purpose of biblical interpretation, or I should say the goal, because the purpose is understanding, but the goal of interpretation is not to arrive at the most literalistic reading of the text possible. The, the, the purpose of biblical interpretation is to understand the communicative intent of the author. Of the author, yeah. What did the author intend to communicate, which means places that are meant to be historical narratives should be read as history. However, if a passage is not meant to be read as a literal historical narrative, it is actually a misreading to say that it is. Now, sometimes like Genesis 1 and 2, it's not absolutely clear. And that's why I say there's more than one acceptable option for those chapters, for these chapters, uh, because neither of the arguments is so compelling that you'd have to be an idiot to think otherwise, right? Um, There's not a a whole lot of issues that are that clear, but what I'm saying is that strong arguments can be made either way. Um, But the point is, is neither of them should take as, like you shouldn't think of like, neither argument, neither position can, can be supported by saying, this is the most literal way of reading it, therefore this should be preferred, because that is not what we're aiming for in biblical interpretation. And there's a lot of texts that we will misinterpret if we insist on that. Okay. Um, yeah, so, um, and this, uh, uh, another big part of this too is, is, is acknowledging, I think, that these things are not entirely clear cut and that there's room for, for different opinions on this. When things are not certain, we don't do ourselves a favor by, by speaking as if they are um, and, and, and not acknowledging that they're not certain. One of my favorite axioms for theological um, discourse is actually comes from Abraham Lincoln. He was talking about, he was a lawyer before he was president. And one of the things that he said was in law, um, it is, and I might be butchering the the quote a little bit. In law, it is always prudent never to argue what you need not, lest you oblige yourself to prove what you cannot. And I think that that's very important in 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 doing Christian theology as well. Mm. Um, if if um, if we set ourselves to the task of insisting on things that we that we that are not clear, then we're going to back ourselves into a lot of corners. And as I've said, I think it can also pastorally be very destructive towards people's faith. Okay. Um, one of the big hallmarks of the new atheism right these richard dawkins and daniel dennett and sam harris was that you have to make a hard and fast uh, decision between science and the bible and are we going to say the same thing do we agree with them on that Hmm. i think that's an important important question an important way to ask so let's go let's go to genesis shall we not
0: sure that was a very long introduction. We've to had what a lot of phenomena
1: <laughs> here, but I kind of wanted to clear some of the minds out of this field, you know. Sure. To, um, just um, so you
0: know, Doug, I might have to bail in, in 10 minutes.
1: Oh, okay. Well, so maybe I'll just continue on then. If
0: you'd, then if I you'd I could like say to say show. whatever,
1: I could say whatever I want. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell everybody what my, um, my planned April Fool's joke on you was that I didn't careful, get to Doug. Do because of the quarantine. Okay. No. Uh, all right. So let's let's talk about Genesis um, Genesis one and two. So first off, I want to say something that I think is very is uh, has been helpful to me, and that is that wherever you you land on how this passage, whether or not this passage jives with modern evolutionary theory, wherever you land on it, the the actual theological meaning of the text and the way in which it contributes to our faith are pretty much the same. So in other words, the, the real important things to take from it um, uh, are there regardless of your the, the way you understand um, how this text fit, fits with modern science. So for example, a lot of the major themes in Genesis that become important later on, such as land, blessing, and seed, uh, those are still there. Uh, the prominence of God's word and how, and how wonderful it is and how creative it is, is, is still there. The idea that everything in the universe is dependent upon God for its existence and its function is still there. The fact that God made creation, material creation, good, is still there. Human beings, our uniqueness in that we are made in the image of God, still there. Human beings accountable first and foremost to God, still there. Human beings responsible to be stewards over creation, still there. The, the intrinsic nature of the Sabbath to creation still there marriage intrinsic to creation still there work intrinsic to creation still there uh, the god of, of of Israel's covenant and later the new covenant being the God who created us and is the God who spoke is spoken of in this text is still there all these things are still present um, and and we can all agree and that's what You know, those are that should be the bounds of like real orthodoxy and real like the things that would really get us excited about this. Um, And the rest of it is kind of details and in answer answers to more specific questions. But the the things that I think God really wants us to take away from these first few chapters, um, they are present regardless of our the way we understand how Genesis relates to certain modern scientific theories.
0: Hmm. Okay. So essentially, I mean, I'm, I'm just trying to kind of call this what it is. So whether or not we look at Genesis and we interpret it as literal as Mm -hmm. a historical account or whether we interpret it otherwise, I, I guess to say that in a way that would provide more room for the, the, the current, um, scientific argument of um, evolution mm-hmm. all of the core components of what genesis offers us to the faith of the christian are still there essentially yes. Yes. okay yeah
1: um and in addition i think what they offer in um in terms of uh now all those things are part of what ancient hebrews would have been uh expected to take away from this as well i think Um, There are additional things, though, that would have informed their thinking. Um, So, um, following in the last 100, 150 years or so, um, uh, uh, historical scholarship has been very helped by the finds of um, cuneiform and other writings from the ancient Near East and the decipherment of those languages languages, particularly languages like Akkadian, Ugaritic, Egyptian, Um, and um, there are creation accounts from these other cultures that were closer at the same time as uh, what we read about in the Bible, and we can compare them, and we can detect certain polemical elements in Genesis, certain things that Genesis seems to be asserting over and against the views of, of um, people who worshiped false gods. So for example, in, a, in, some, in some of these stories, so like in Babylon where you have stories like the Enuma Elish or Atrahasis or um, quote unquote Canaanite stories, um, particularly the, the Ugaritic Baal um, epic. Um, that's the Baal that we read about in the Bible. Ugaritic is, a, is similar to what Canaanite culture probably was, but not identical. But you have uh, the gods fighting with one another, and often uh, the uh, creation comes about as a result of fighting. So in the Enuma Elish, the god Marduk, who's the patron deity of the city of Babylon, he defeats the water monster Tiamat and divides her into waters above and waters below. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? But... Uh, In Genesis, there's no content contenders. It's just the Lord saying, you go here and you go here. Okay. Big contrast. There's, there's no deification of creation. In fact, some elements that the, there's an interesting element in day four, God creates the sun, moon, and stars. Right. But it's kind of weird that he doesn't say that text doesn't say he created the sun, moon, and stars. Right. What does it say? He created the greater light.
0: And the, the lesser, lesser light. light, yeah, right. Won the rule Why? over the day and won the rule over the. Yeah.
1: Why? Because because in Hebrew, the words for sun and moon were also the, the words for the deities of the sun and the moon. So Shemesh slash Shamash was not only the sun, but the sun deity. Reach, hmm. Reach, from whom the, the the city Jericho gets its name, Jericho, right? Uh, that's the moon deity. Okay. And and so it's almost like it doesn't even mention them as if to say, don't even think about it. <laughs> right. It's huh. just a greater light and a lesser light. That's what it is. And it does Yahweh's bidding. It does the Lord's bidding. Um, hmm. Uh, in, in Babylon, in the, uh, the Atrachasis epic, the, humankind is created in order to provide the gods for food. In fact, when the flood comes around, the reason why they stop the flood is because they're hungry and they realize we just killed everyone who's there to feed us. Um, and, in Genesis, God provides man with food and takes care of all his needs. So there's a lot of different um, uh, aspects of the theological meaning of this text. Mm. Okay. Um, all right. Um, But, uh, and that's, that, those things are all there regardless of your reading. Now, so the big question is, is for us is, is how does this, what are the different ways that, that we as modern Christians can read it? The first legitimate way of reading it is what I'll call the literal 24 hour day view. And that is that God created, did his work of creation in seven 24 hour consecutive uh, periods, a, A week. A, a literal week. Um, this is um, a very uh, so so Genesis is very straightforward history. If you had a time machine and you could go back to day one, um, you would see light created and nothing else would be present or formed, right? Because technically, it it starts with water here, um, if uh, uh, and and so on and so forth. Um, And the one thing this has going in its favor is it does have the appearance of literalness, okay? We can say we're just believing what the Bible says. Um, Another argument that's that's ushered in favor is uh, in Exodus 20, verses 10 through 11, when God gives the Sabbath commandment, the reasoning given there is because God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh. And so, and so Exodus is um, alleged to support this, this view, okay? Um, and so those are, those are a couple of like the, the real main reasons why people would affirm this. But essentially, I think the big compelling reason is that it seems to be the face value of the text, at least for us as modern readers. There's a couple right. of problems with this. With this. Uh, The first is the creation of the luminaries on the fourth day. Okay, so the sun, the moon, and the stars. Even though their light is present uh, before their quote-unquote creation, Uh, the light is present from the first day, and they're specifically created in order to give light, and they're specifically created in order to separate the day from the night. Although day and night has been going on for several days by the time they're created. Okay, so right. not an impossible. I've heard this argument before, it, yeah. It's not insuperable, right? Because you could just say, well, God did it some other way before then. That's fine. Um, uh, also, people will point out that the Sabbath commandment makes sense on a non-literal reading as well. So I'll just kind of mention that without really going too far into it. Another big issue though, is the chronological um, differences between chapters one and two? So, just to name what I consider to be the big one um, in Genesis one, the animals are created first on day six, and then mankind is created. Right. In fact, you've got you've got other animals created before the day six animals on day uh, on day uh, five. Right. The swarming animals in the sky and on the, and in the sea. Um, Whereas in chapter two, man is created first and then the animals and then the woman. Okay. So it's a very different order. And this is a bit of a tricky issue uh, because if you look in chapter two at verse 19, um, notice the way that the English standard translation and some other English translations attempt to um, I don't want to say cover up. I don't think it's this is a disingenuous way of doing it, but they, they read this way. So if you back up to verse 18, it says, then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every uh, beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. So there it's taking it as, as an action that happened prior, right? So there there is no difference in order of creation because the had formed means that he did it at some point in the past, not that he's doing it here in verse 19. The problem is, is that that's not what the Hebrew says. Okay, so Hebrew narrative is carried forward by a certain verbal type. For those of you who've had some Hebrew, I'm referring to the vayaktol verb form. So you have an action, and then the next 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 action. And the verb perform, czar is that kind of verb that we've seen all throughout the narrative. This happened, this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. So the, so the, the unbiased way to translate this should be and out of the ground the Lord formed every beast of the field, or even then, as is often done. but the English standard version in in, in an effort to bring it in harmony with the order of verse of chapter one uh, um, uses a non-standard way of translating this verbal form in order to harmonize it.
0: this is now I want to be fascinating so yes. I'm I'm getting killed because I know you and I had kind of a hard time finding a finding a time to record today, and I absolutely have to bolt. Um, I have so many questions. I want. Are
1: we going to have a trouble turning? Are we going to have a tro- trouble turning this off, or do I just press leave when I'm done?
0: No, I think I press leave, and then you press stop when you're done. Hopefully, we'll see huh. how that goes. But I'll leave you to it, Doug. I do have a bunch of questions. I was going to ask if we wanted to kind of hit a pause in the recording and come back to this later. I'm not sure if that comes down to it or i can just could just let you go we could run. totally do that let's do you want to do that
1: start, let's do a well, yeah so okay. um uh, we will for see you everybody
0: watching yeah we'll hours in into media.
1: our future but it'll be instantaneous for you it will be like that time machine we talked about it'll Send <laughs> einstein one minute into the future
0: and then you guys will have a choice to whether, whether or not you interpret this as a few hours in between us getting uh, back together yes. again or just a exactly. few minutes. Okay. <laughs> all right, cool, Doug. So thank you for doing that because I actually have a thousand questions. I, I really would hate to miss this. All right, so, I'll try
1: to get my All hair right, We're going to
0: take a exactly. short break. Everybody go grab some coffee. Doug and I will be back in a few hours, but for you, we'll be back in a few minutes. And uh, we'll see you in a little bit. All right. And we're back. What's up, Doug? Nice hey. to see you. How's Thirty seconds later. Yes, yes.
1: I'm jumping Maybe right back seconds. in, so I think we've already marvelled at our technology. So we can <laughs> we can Snap just pick like it right that. back up. Yeah. Um. Okay. So we've been, we were talking about the chronological discrepancy between chapters one and two, and um, the way in which um, uh, chapter two, verse nineteen. Um, is uh, sometimes translated in uh, modern English translations uh, so as to kind of cover up that discrepancy. And um, I'm not sure if I mentioned this or not, but I don't want to make it out as if this is some kind of illegitimate move uh, because occasionally this verbal form can have that nuance. It can revert back out of chronological sequence and give um, like past background information. That's not impossible. It's not common. Mm -hmm. Um, But in fact, um, one of the better Hebrew grammarians that I will um, often, um, you know, uh, consult uh, Francis Anderson, who actually just passed away. He was a great servant of the Lord wrote a lot of really great commentaries, especially on minor prophets and compiled the Anderson Forbes database, which um, I don't know how many people are that interested in, but it's a it's a syntactical database of the entire Old Testament. But at wow. any rate, he talks about this feature, and one of the things that he notes is that it's when uh, uh, that that this verb can have a, a pluperfect. Uh, force which is had formed okay i actually know that tense from learning latin in high school okay there you go so yeah so an event in the in the past like like that kind of event in the past right like uh it can have that nuance specifically when context demands it so the argument would be that chapter one presents a different order and that provides contextual warrant for this translation okay but and and even the esv has a footnote that says um. Uh. Um. Or and out of the ground the Lord God formed. So it yeah. acknowledges that this is not the only way to translate it, but I would say that it's it's, you know, it's kind of special pleading. It seems like to me here uh, yeah. to alleviate a difficulty, but it's not. It, but because context can sometimes warrant it, it's mm. not like. Totally determinative, like yeah, there's definitely a different order of events here. But what? Not I'll that it really
0: is, changes the meaning anyway.
1: It doesn't really change the meaning, but here's what it does. Okay, um, it, so I would say in all likelihood, it is not plu perfect. There's the there. It in all likelihood, uh, it is sim- a simple sequence of action, at the, and that there is in fact a discrepancy in. Uh, in the order of creation, in between chapters one and two, and the and the and the the point that that this brings us to is the one, On the one hand, there are those who would just say, "Well, here's a Bible contradiction or something, right? Or here's a a conflict in the text, and they would seek to detract from the value of the the, the scripture because of that." What I would say is that even on theories of authorship that have Genesis going through editing and stuff like that and redacting, right? Apparently the Hebrews were comfortable with putting these two chapters side by side and not changing them. And one explanation that you can't have for discrepancies in the text, or at least one one uh, observation that I find very, very unconvincing is that they missed it, that it's an accident and we're just smart enough to see it. Uh, these guys knew their text r- the text ridiculously well, way better than we know it. There's so no memorize
0: them day in and day out. Yeah, yeah We're talking
1: memorization. We're talking I mean, when you read the the what the scribes did, um in like if you read uh the standard Hebrew text that everybody uses, the biblica hebraica Stuttgartensia, in the in the margins, the scribes have noted when for like if a particular form occurs only twice in the hebrew bible like they know how many times different types of words like it's it's just it's very implausible to say that it's there by accident and so i asked the question and i think it and i think many have like why were they comfortable putting two accounts that differ next to one another and one possible explanation for that is that they understood that one is not to be led, read woodenly, literally. Hmm. Um, that they they understood that they're putting aside, um, uh, side by the, that one of the elements here is one of the one of the chapters, one of the accounts is is not relating, uh, is not meant to relate, convey a direct sequence of events. And I find that to be much more likely to be chapter one, um, given that it is much, uh, it reads much less like, a, like an actual um, historical narrative. There's a lot more stylistic stuff going on there. Um, uh, for, for example, um, it, this is all, chapter one is often called elevated prose. Now, noting these features does not mean it's not historical but sure. there's a lot of stuff that's way more artful than normal hebrew narrative. so mm-hmm. for example you have the number 1 all over the place or number 7, seven. all over the
0: place rather, yeah. right
1: not just in 7 days but as i've mentioned in previous like the in previous episodes the first um verse the first sentence i guess you could say is seven words the second sentence well it's in in hebrew in right hebrew. so sure. it would be bereshit bara um elohim et Okay. And then verse two is 14 words. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, uh, Chapter two, verses one through three, which is the seventh day is 35 words. Uh, Mm -hmm. God is mentioned 35 times in the first table of creation.
0: Interesting. Uh,
1: Earth is mentioned 21 times.
0: And then you also... Yeah. Then what, you also, what you're saying, then, Doug, is that there's there's some very specific artistry on the part of the very, author here.
1: Yeah, very specific. Um, there, you also have like a tight, really tight correspondence between the days. So they they seem. If you count them, two sets of three plus one. Uh, so like day day uh, one corresponds to day four. So in day one there's light, and then in day four the the lights of the heavens. Uh, Hmm. Sometimes this is called forming and filling. Uh, Day two, uh, you have the firmament, which separates the waters below and the waters above. And then in day five, which corresponds to it, you have the fish and the birds. Those are the things that... That dwell in the waters above and the waters below, and then day three you have the dry land and the vegetation. With day six you have animals and humans, which inhabit which inhabit that space, mm. and then day seven kind of crowns it with the with rest. Mm. Not, none of the, again that's not a that's not a like a strong argument that it's certainly historical narratives can be told in a literarily artful way, mm. but there's um, it's. It sets it kind of apart as, at the very least, very elevated prose, which kind of argues in that direction. Now, the another thing, um, well, no, I guess I'll get to this in a minute. So that's essentially my analysis of the twenty of the literal twenty four. So what I say to of the literal twenty four hour um, view of this text, and uh, and that is a fine reading. That's obviously a, a a good way to read this text, and and none of the you know, none of the polemical nature, neither the polemical nature, nor the theological points, nor anything like that are detracted by us saying that this is a historical text. But there are some vulnerabilities to it. And some of these vulnerabilities also will be highlighted when I mention.
0: All right, buddy, I think I lost you there for a second. So let's backtrack a, a minute or two. Um, you're talking about polemical characterizations.
1: Yeah. Okay. So all I'm saying is that, um, did I say that right? It is. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So uh, as I said um, earlier, there are, there are a bunch of things about that, that the text is meant to teach that we know and all views agree on. Right. And, and all of those things are present with a very literal 24 hour view. So that doesn't detract from anything. It doesn't follow from the, so if I say, okay, there's all these ancient near Eastern parallels and clearly it seems to be Um, interacting with some of these ideas that we know were uh, around at the time. None of that means that, uh, that the text is therefore not historical. Um, You, you have, uh, you can have just a straightforward historical narrative that does all of that. Okay. Now, one uh, attempt to read um, this as, um, as, as historical that I think doesn't work is what's called the day age theory. And that is the essentially mm. the idea that the days described actually refer to much longer periods of time. So millions, maybe billions of years, right? Um, and, um, and so you have arguments about, you have people talking about like, oh, the, the Hebrew word for day, yom, can mean more than a 24 hour period. And I just find that, and, uh, you know, there's people who, respectable people who do think that way, but I, uh, I don't think it's very common in Old Testament scholarship at this point to really appeal to that. Um, And uh, the reason I find it unconvincing, I I think is the reason why a lot of Old Testament scholars find it unconvincing. And that is, um, number one, the other places that we might point to where the word day means a much longer period of time, they usually seem to be like an idiomatic expression. So for example, like... the prophets will speak of the day of the Lord. And so you'll have uh, statements like on that day, the Lord will do dot, 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 like Amos 8, 3 or something like that. Um, Or um, uh, like, you know, it just seems to mean like when or something like that. But the real, the real strong reason why I don't find the day age convincing, it's kind of twofold. First off if we mean it so that it alleviates, so that it leaves room for some more, you know, modern science, you know, so maybe it could incorporate like the Big Bang or something. You actually end up with problems exacerbated, uh, because um, so if you say, well, okay, the 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 plants are grow uh, plants are growing before there's sunlight, um, or before before the sun exists on day four, right? Plants are created on day three. Um, well, now it's millions of years, whereas if it was just 24 hours, I could see plants living. Yeah. You know, but, but, but now it's millions of years, and not only that, but the sequence doesn't really help you to do to, to jive with science anyway. I mean, who, who's uh, who out there thinks that the that the Earth was created before the sun, for example? You know, you, you know what I mean, um, or or existed before the sun. Uh, but the real big textual reason is simply the fact that each of these have an evening and a morning, and I, I I just find it very unconvincing to say that these are day that these are not intended to be 24-hour days in view of the fact that evening and morning is mentioned with each of them. So one way in which I which I think you know Christians can definitely read the text is as literal. Now, the other way is what I actually prefer to call the ahistorical view, and that is. Not that the text is not like is contrary to history, but just that it's simply not meant to give history. So a way that I'll sometimes describe this is it's this view would be akin to something like, say, in Revelation, right, where we're reading Revelation and you get seven seals and seven trumpets and seven bowls, right? Now that is, it's at least very plausible to read those as symbolic of things, but not necessarily a literal sequence that's going to happen. Like, um, and, and, and so what it is, is it's a way of conveying a vision, okay? Sure. Um, and, uh, and that would be akin to what we would be seeing here to what this would be. I think that it helps to think of it along that line. That's not to say that this is apocalyptic or anything like that, but that's just another example of something in, in prose narrative that is described in a literarily artful way to describe real truth, but not to give um, a historical play-by-play of things. Okay, And so that's kind of like what this view would say. So the six-day pattern would then be like a literary structuring device. Um, And uh, the message would be primarily theological and not historical. Um, um, And as I said, this isn't the objection that, well, then this undermines the whole historicity of Genesis or the whole historicity of the Bible, I think the, is not, I don't really, I'm not too concerned by that because as I said, there's many biblical works that combine genres that have some parts that are historical, some that are not. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a, it's a, as far as I'm concerned, it's a fallacious slippery slope argument. Um, now I, I think that um, this view explains various features of the text that the different views do have trouble with. So I've already mentioned the different orders in chapters one and two. Another really good example of this is the thing uh, that is uh, created on day two. Okay. And that is the firmament of the heavens, the, or the uh, expanse as it's sometimes called. Okay. Um and uh, the question is just what is it that's created on the second day? It says, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Uh, and, it, and it separates the waters above the expanse from the waters below. So I guess the waters in the sky from the waters in the, uh, in the deep, right? Now, what geological um, object is being described there? Okay. Now, so a lot of people who want to read it really literally will say, well, this is just the atmosphere. This is just like maybe an observational way of talking about the sky. But if we're reading the text literally, note what happens. So the, where are, if you look to day four in verse 14, okay, where are the lights placed? They're placed in the what? In the expanse of the heavens. In the expanse of the heavens. Okay, hmm. They're located in this thing. Okay. And the birds fly across the face of it. Okay. And it's for this reason and for some other re- a few other reasons, some are lexical um, and for, based on other texts, that many have suggested um, that a probable reading of what this is, is a reflection of the ancient view that a solid dome covered the earth, that the sky was solid. Okay. Um, for example, th- and this is just, would just be like one of many examples, but I was uh, helping Ryan prep for his uh, Proverbs message yesterday. And I came across this statement in Proverbs um, uh, chapter. Uh, let's see here. Where was it? <clears throat>
0: uh
1: on it, I wrote it wrong down wrong. Um, huh, that's what I get when I'm not when I don't plan on going to a particular verse. Oh, did I just write it illegibly? I can't read my own handwriting.
0: All right, so essentially what I'm trying to summarize all this in my head, Doug. And essentially what I'm hearing then is that. All of all of the beginning of this in Genesis, you know what I mean, can be taken in majoritatively two two views: a historical view, basically yes. taking the text at face value to be literate to be literal as we interpret yes. it, and then an a historical view, which mm-hmm. is essentially, if I'm hearing you right, it's it's basically the author summarized what happened at the beginning. This happened. Um, yes. It's meant to be taken almost symbolically because it's not necessarily meant to be an entire. Um, literal play by play verse by verse kind yes. of a thing but rather here's kind of what happened in the beginning it's it's been specifically placed together in an intentional way as you're suggesting with you know there's patterns here in the text uh, yeah. like the seven you know seven kind of reappearing throughout this and and so on and so forth and in some of the um form and fill as you've mentioned first it was form then it was filled form fill and and not necessarily a this happened specifically at this point and this point and this right. point and so on and so right
1: forth. right um, yes, yeah. So it's, in essence, like, the, the, what it does is it, con- is, it, is it conveys the theological information, but it's not trying to convey historical information. I did find the, the, the passage that I, was, that I had come across yesterday. It's actually chapter 8, uh, verses 27 and 29 of Proverbs. So it's, uh, here's, here, it's talking about God's creation. And it says, when he established the heavens, I was there. It's talking about wisdom when he drew a circle on the face of the deep when he made firm the skies above and when he established the fountains of the deep okay made firm the the, the skies above um and uh th- you know there's a variety of different passages all you know this speaks of like windows of heaven and things like that um and so the so the idea here is is that if um if we try to find a a geological object that corresponds to the firmament, we're kind of hard pressed for it because if you're reading the text, literally, it says that the sun, moon, and stars are placed in it. So Hmm. I would say what, what, uh, what physical object is it where there are where the sun and moon are in it and there are waters above it. Hmm. Right. Um, But, from a literary framework view, that's not a problem because what, what this is, is this is um, simply the way that the ancient Hebrews understood their world. And it's saying that the, that the, that the Lord, uh, that, 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 that the Lord created this, this feature of it.
0: So this is interesting to me, Doug. So yeah. essentially, if we fast forward thousands of years and get to where we're sitting right now, Mm -hmm. I can say space and I can say atmosphere and I can say, you know, ecosystem and sky and everything. We have words to kind of describe this. And if I'm hearing you, Doug, if we kind of rewind back to ancient Hebrew world language and culture and everything else, when you look up, you don't know that space is beyond that. You're basically looking at a big blue thing up there or black at times, the birds fly across it, the sun's up there, the moon's up there, the stars are up there and essentially this is saying that god made all those things (laughs)
1: uh yes so what whatever there is that's out there god made it Mm -hmm. and now we this is the thing that's kind of hard to get your head around because is the bible saying that god did something that you know made something that doesn't actually exist right Mm -hmm. um and and i would just say that like a couple things that i've found helpful on this is first off if this is that's why i think the 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 literary um Uh, a historical view is to be favored here because that doesn't commit you to saying that. And so in some sense, I could say, because I believe in biblical inerrancy, I find favor with this view or this view is compelling to me at least. Okay. Mm. Because it doesn't compel me to assert things that aren't true or to explain something away, despite what seems to be the case that the text, what seems to be what the text is saying. But the other thing that's helpful too is, so there are other expressions in the Hebrew Bible, such as the sun setting, or as it literally will say, the sun going in. Now we could say, well, we say sun setting and we don't mean it literally, right? We we like, nobody tries to call me out for saying, look at that sunset, right? We know that the earth is going, but the Hebrews didn't know that, right? The Mm -hmm. Hebrews did think that that's what ha- what's happening and that expression is used in the Hebrew Bible and so what God Wait, does
0: I, I think I missed something there Doug so what did they what did they mean when they said sunset so that it was sunset, going away
1: the sun going in is the sun moving into the underworld or out of view oh, right it's not oh. us going around the sun so what I'm saying is like we can mm. retain that language and we know that we're not being literal but when they used it they probably didn't they probably thought that that's what was happening, right? They don't have a heliocentric view of the solar system. Hmm. So so what that is, is God is accommodating his language to the current understanding of the people at the time. And you can go ahead and read the Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy, which is the standard um, statement of you know the inerrancy of scripture, that the scripture is without error and all that it affirms. And it leaves space for that kind of language, for, for the kind of language where, and and uh, John Walton in his commentary on Genesis is very helpful in this respect. Although I disagree with some of his views and we don't have time to get into it then. Um, i reviewed his book, um, The Lost World of Genesis 1 for the journal Themelios out there. Um, if, if you're interested in because that book has made some waves. But one of the things that he helpfully notes in his commentary is that Any period of time that God chose to give the Bible, like say he had chose to give it today, like, you know, that he was inspiring someone to write Genesis 1 today, he would have to accommodate it to the current views of humanity in order for it to make sense. Hmm. So God isn't teaching that there's a solid dome above the earth, especially if this is not a literal historical text. Um, God is simply is simply using our language and our understandings of the universe to describe what is, what is true, what he wants us to know. And what he wants us to know is not necessarily how he did it, or maybe not even exactly how long it took, but he wants us to know the, the, the key theological truths about him, about our world, and about ourselves. Interesting. Yeah. Now we, we do have, yeah. So go, yeah. I
0: want to, let me ask you something here, Doug, because I've always, I remember being taught one time that like Genesis 1, 1 was just kind of like a summary statement.
1: Mm-hmm. Like in the beginning. It is. Yes. God it is created the heavens and the earth. Yes. yes.
0: And that, that happened, period. Yeah. That's it. End of, end of the sentence. Now yes. let's zoom in on basically everything God wants to teach us about our own theology, about how we understand yes. how he created things. And then it kind of starts <laughs> describing certain things like that. Yes. So, and so yeah, it's yeah. interesting because in my mind, like the very first verse of the entirety of the Bible mm-hmm. gives me a history that I don't exactly understand. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That yeah. like, that God was, was always has been, and the heavens and the earth were created and now Genesis begins for us to begin understanding what God's doing with humanity here on earth. Right. And, like and in fact, in fact,
1: that's an important thing. And that also infer informs the standard reading of it. Right. Because mm. um, so so it, Genesis one, one, that's a good question. A good, a good question to ask is, is that the first act of creation mm. and then everything else is the subsequent acts of creation or is it a summary of everything, of all that's about to be explained? Interesting. So the first, so, so in other words, is it in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, then as a result, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Then God said, let there be light. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, right? Or is it in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and here's what that looked like. Right, which is interesting because then in verse two stuff starts with the earth already existing.
0: Right. Right.
1: Right. Now yeah. the earth is formless and void. And I will say that it's almost beyond question that that is how the text is to be read. Which because the
0: former or the latter?
1: The latter with, okay. with Genesis one, one as a summary statement. And the quick reason why, and again, this is, I don't mean to pull out he like the Hebrew card, but um the the that clause now the earth was formless and void the haaret hayata tohu bohu is what's called a disjunctive clause in essence it gives background information to what 's about to happen so mm-hmm. like and 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 just to 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 show you uh the this is how um this is how um uh uh n- uh, scenes begin especially in the beginning of Genesis. So, another couple examples of it uh, Genesis 2 5, okay, um, uh, this is a disjunctive uh, clause. Now, no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had sprung up, right? That's background information. And then the action is going to start. Um, Chapter three, verse one, here's a good one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. And he said to the woman, and she said this, and he said this, and right, then the action starts. Chapter four, verse one, now Adam knew Eve, his wife right? Same thing. It's a disjunctive clause. It gives background information. Now, if you ask, where's the disjunctive clause in Genesis 1? It's in verse 2, not in verse 1. So, the, yeah, exactly. So, the, the action doesn't actually start until verse 3, when God says, let there be light. But if that's the case. The, the earth is already there. The waters are already there. And what God does is he gets to work separating them. And which which informs like how we view other stuff in the Bible. Like when the flood happens, what you get is a decreation, right? The waters above and the waters below that have been separated back together. The 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 dry land that separated water from water disappears and is and and you evolve devolve back to the point where the earth is formless and void mm. and darkness is over the face of the deep. It's a decreation and a recreation happening there. Uh, all kinds of interesting stuff. Yeah.
0: So Genesis is crazy, man. Genesis has always been like my favorite book of the Bible. Especially it, like the first chapter. Like if you just read it, it'll blow your mind. You know what I yeah. mean? If you, if you capture even half of what's going on here.
1: Yeah. It's a, it's amazing. But so just to kind of wrap things up. Sure. Um, I just want so I I think where where I tend to land on this is I tend to favor the ahistorical literary reading of Genesis chapter one, and there's probably elements of that in two as well, although we haven't really gotten into that. Um, but, I, but I'm also perfectly fine if someone wants to say, no, it's a literal 24 hours thing. I think those are your two really defensible positions from a textual standpoint. In, mm. terms of, um, uh, in terms of how it jives with modern scientific theories like evolution and stuff like that, obviously you're gonna get more conflict if you prefer a literal 24 hour theory. And so usually a lot of, a lot of Christians who take that route Will be warm to a lot of like the creation science kind of stuff, right? Like rereading the fossil evidence and things like that, and and arguing against evolution and things like that. Whereas um, uh, individuals who feel um, uh, who who feel that the that that the stronger argument can be made for the uh, symbolic literary view will have less of a difficult time incorporating. Um, uh, that kind of, uh, you know, a modern evolutionary theory into uh, God's creation and mm. and will t- likely be more open to uh, folks who want to say things like this is the means by what evolution is the means by which God brought about life, just like we understand the biological processes that knit us by which the Lord knits us together in our mother's womb. So this is the biological process that produced a diversity of life in the world. And I'm not I'm not gonna say that like, you know, I'm super committed to 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 saying that or anything like that. But I think um I, I would just say to those who are who who might be out there struggling either now or at some point in the future you know, if 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 you look at some of the evidence for evolution and like maybe the DNA evidence or something like that, and, and you start feeling really compelled, I I would just urge that we not tell such people that, well, you gotta make a choice. Are you gonna be, believe the Bible or are you gonna believe this? I, I think that's an unwise way to posture ourselves towards the culture at large and towards individuals who are wrestling with these things. Um, uh, the biblical text yields um, you know different readings, and note that none of my none of the reasons that I gave for adopting a a um you know a a, a literary view of the text is dependent on a, evolution is true right? right that's not how that's not a presupposition that i 'm using to to arrive at that. These are textual arguments um some of them bleed into um observational science so you know when i mentioned what do you do with the firmament that's yes but but then again uh you know that's normal to interpretation when you're trying to say what does this correspond to in the real world that is not an extraordinary like you know i'm just genuflecting before science or anything like that no the fact that there's no solid dome over us if that is indeed what the text is teaching um is not like a controversial issue and is a totally legitimate question to ask of the text.
0: Yeah. It also doesn't change anything as, as far as the core, the core message of scripture in regards to the gospel, you know, we say this a lot at emergence, you know, and I have heard folks on, on both sides, you know what I mean? That, that constantly argue about this. And I I think, you know, as a pastor, my, my warning would be this, you know, be careful in, in what you make, um, a primary issue, you know what I mean? Whether you believe that, you know, a historical view or an ahistorical view with this or a literary interpretation or a symbolic interpretation, it still doesn't affect who Jesus is, you know what I mean? It, it still doesn't right. affect what he's done. It still doesn't affect the, the core message of scripture that we have and that um, we adhere to, which, which are core beliefs, right? So for instance, uh, yeah. a firsthand issue is that uh, Jesus was born a virgin or mm-hmm. from a virgin mother. And like that's a core aspect, you know, um, that Jesus was truly God and truly man, you know, the there's there's some of these things that are absolutely essential to the Christian faith and whether or not we believe that Genesis was a literal seven day creation or not a literal seven day creation or they're more symbolic has it's not a primary issue. There are Christians on both sides.
1: Right. That that's not to say it's not sometimes set up that way. And I think if there's something to resist, it's that. It's, yeah. it's that. It's you know forcing that forcing that choice. And um, yeah, you know, I, I think um, uh, we we I, I I love the idea. I'm, I feel very strongly about the idea that like we need to hold on to the positive reasons we have for affirming our faith in Christ. Mm-hmm. And then let the other things that we're trying to work through. We want to. We want to work through those things um, in the context of faith seeking understanding. So the central thing that I know is that Jesus is the son of God and he died for me and rose on the third day and I will be with him with if I trust in him. Mm -hmm. And then the other things get generated out from that. But I'm not going to set my faith up like a house of cards where like every little detail in scripture, like if I have any doubt about it or question about it, suddenly, oh my gosh, what do I do? Did Solomon really have that many horses in his stables? I don't know. Like, no, like you got to put these things in his right place. And I'm not saying that this is in, like, you know, that, that or like a Solomon stable kind of thing, but I just use an extreme example, you know, like it's, it's important to realize what's at the center and what is not, what can have question marks hanging over them and what things we really want to be very firm on.
0: Right. There's a lot of things that we can read in scripture that I hope that one day we'll actually be able to ask God himself. Yeah. like, yeah. Hey. You know what I mean? <laughs> In a mirror dim
1: lane, then we will see face to face. Exactly. Awesome. I don't know if that means we'll know everything, but
0: <laughs> yeah, I know. I hope I get to ask we'll a couple of questions. Clearly. Yeah. Right? I'm, I'm yeah. I've, I ask you lots of questions and Doug's always just like, well, <laughs> and I get both of these sides are just like, Oh, interesting. In any case, Doug, thank you uh, for your work on this. I know this was a little bit longer of a, um, of a theology Thursday. This will also be made available via a podcast as well. So, uh, Doug and I always put out, we just call it the Emergence Discipleship Podcast. It used to specifically be a podcast for our leaders, but a lot of people found it helpful. So if you want to check that out, you can find it on the Apple Store, Google Play Store, all those different places, Spotify, and all that. Just look up Emergence Discipleship Podcast, it'll point you there. This will be available there as well. And the reason why we're doing that is because these, for Theology Thursday in particular, these videos tend to be a little bit longer. You know, Doug puts a lot of work into preparing his notes and, and making sure that. Um, we've got good material to really reflect on. And so, uh, they do tend to be a little bit longer and sometimes a podcast might be more appropriate for that, uh, that you can listen in your car while you're jogging. I listen to it when when I jog, uh, which is weird because I have our own voices kind of coming back, but, and then I can hear all the stupid things I say in the background. (laughs) All right, Doug, thanks for your time, man. Thanks everybody for, for tuning in and we'll look forward to seeing you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.